In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. Today is the 12th Sunday after Trinity. We are continuing in chapter 14 of Luke's Gospel. You'll remember that chapter 14 begins with Jesus going to the house of a Pharisee on the Sabbath in order to share a meal. And that at this meal in this Pharisee's home, he heals a man. And Jesus calls them hypocrites for uh, confounding his healing and saying that he shouldn't have done it on the Sabbath. He turns to them and says, which one of you wouldn't pull an animal that had fallen out of a well on the Sabbath day? And so he continues with this uh, changed teaching, this radical teaching about the Sabbath, this uh, new, more uh, important teaching about the Sabbath rest here in chapter 14. And everything that we see afterwards is uh, shaped by this uh, new understanding of the Sabbath, about how it is that we're called to rest and what comes out of that rest, that resting in the Lord uh, teaches us how to act with grace and with mercy. There are three parables that follow uh, that he tells while he's in this Pharisee's home on the Sabbath day. He tells three parables and they all have to do with banqueting. They all have to do with coming to a meal. So you'll remember that the first parable he tells is about being invited to a wedding feast as a guest and how it is that we're supposed to go in as a guest, what attitude we're supposed to have. We're supposed to be poor in spirit as a guest. We're supposed to go in with a poverty of spirit saying, I'm so glad to be here, rather than going in and saying, hey, I'm here. Uh, You've saved the best place for me, I'm sure, right? The opposite of the poor in spirit is to have this, this richness of spirit and this, uh, everybody's so glad to see me. Poverty of spirit is to say, I'm so glad that I'm here. Uh, let me take the lowest seat and let me just be glad that I've been welcomed in. This is the attitude with which Jesus teaches us to go in as guests at his table in his kingdom. Then he tells a second parable about how it is that we're supposed to be hosts. He says when we host a meal, when we invite people, he says we're supposed to invite those who cannot repay us. We're supposed to have an attitude of mourning when we invite as a host. The attitude of mourning is to say, I see people who are in need, I'm mourning and I'm grieving with them. I know that they need to be invited, that they need to have that comfort of fellowship and of food. And so let me provide that as a host. That's the second attitude. So we're supposed to be poor in spirit. We're supposed to be mourning our own sins and the sins of others, their condition, and offering grace and mercy to them. And then finally, the third parable he tells, we don't read on a Sunday. So again, it's a reminder for us to be reading Luke's gospel on our own and our own scripture reading time. The third parable he tells is about a man who invites those to a banquet and they don't come. They've got excuses about why they're not going to attend the banquet. And the excuses are many. I just bought some new property. I've got some uh, responsibilities in my business. I've just been married. I've got to go back to my wife. And so these people uh, are giving excuses for themselves, which is the opposite of meekness. When we're meek, we don't make excuses for ourselves. We say, I have no uh, defense. And we accept the consequences of our actions. 
When we're bold, we're saying, oh, I've got reasons, I've got excuses, I've got uh, things to do. And so Jesus is telling us about the Sabbath. He's telling us about this rest that we're supposed to have in Him and this attitude of being poor in spirit and being mourning and being meek as it relates to being invited into the kingdom of God. And now the passage that we have is a summary coming after those three parables about uh, banqueting, about hosts and guests and the kingdom of God. Now He's telling us uh, about the attitude that we're supposed to have this uh, foundational underlying attitude uh, that he describes as taking up our cross. Of course, we know that this is the central theme, this is the central message, it's the central symbol and action, if you will, of our faith is Jesus upon the cross. But rather than him saying, hey, I did it, don't worry about it, you can go off and do what you want to do, I died on the cross so that you just can do whatever you want. He's saying, if you want the benefits of my death upon the cross, you have to participate in it by carrying your own cross. And so what does this mean? It means that we too have to have that attitude of sacrificial love. If we want to receive the benefits of Jesus' sacrificial love, we too have to be willing to sacrifice in love and to take up our own cross. In other places in the Gospels, he says to daily to daily take up your cross. And so we are asked on a daily basis to take up our own cross. This is one of the great privileges of Anglicanism, one of the great benefits of being Anglicans, and that is that we have been given morning and evening prayer as ways to organize our thoughts, to organize our practices, so that we are able to daily take up our cross. If we don't have a daily practice of prayer and of reflection, we will not be able to do the task that Jesus gives us to do, because he tells us very explicitly that there are supposed to be daily practices of organizing ourselves, to be sacrificial and that we need to be able to count the cost. He says here in, in, in Luke's gospel in verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross cannot be my disciple. So it's just very clear, it's very straightforward that this is a fundamental act in our participation in the kingdom of God. And then he gives us these two very little short uh, parable situations, if you will. And he talks about a man building a house or a man going to war, a king going to war. And he says, if you go to build a house and you don't sit down and deliberately work out the cost, you will go bankrupt and the house will not be built and you'll look a fool. He says the same thing about a king going to war. If you don't account for who your troops are and who it is that you're matching against, you are going to fail. You're going to lose. And you'll have to ask for unfavorable terms of peace, right? If you get caught unawares, you're going to have to, to give unfavorable terms. And so there's these two little parables about the importance of being prepared and being deliberate. And he says here, he says, sit down first and deliberate. What are we deliberating? We're deliberating on where our foundation is going to be set, where it is that we're going to build the foundation of our lives. And this should be a really important uh, moment of reflection for us as we think about evangelism, as we think about inviting people into the kingdom of God, as we think about inviting them into his table. Because so often we allow evangelism to be thought of as a moment of, of sorrow or great despair or great emotion where somebody is kind of at the end 
into themselves and uh, there's this uh, decision for Christ. And what needs to happen is that person, along with a mature Christian, needs to be able to sit down and say, what is it you're basing your life on? What is it you're putting your trust in? What is it you're putting your expectations in? How is it that you're organizing your life? Are you depending on uh, your own wealth or good looks or talent or your family or your status in society? What is it you're going to put your foundation on? So to sit down and be deliberate about where it is we're going to put our foundation, where is it we're going to build our lives is an essential thing and it has to be a deliberate thing. Deliberate in the way that we practice in morning and evening prayer. We're constantly, day after day, we are deliberating about where we put our trust and where we put our hope. It's essential that we have these times of reflection. Indeed, you could think of Deuteronomy, uh, where we're at in chapter 30, as being one long passage of deliberation. Moses has led the people out of the wilderness, and they are on the edge of the promised land, right? They go to the edge of the Jordan River, and they stand there, and Moses goes up on the mountain, and the Lord shows him over to the promised land, shows him where the people are going to go, and then he tells them to summarize what's happened, and Moses goes before the nation of Israel, and he reminds them about what it is that's happened. Why does he have to do that? Because they forgot, right? And we would think, man, you spent 40 years wandering and suffering and following a a flame and following the cloud and the pillar and, and seeing all these miracles. You would think that the first thing on their mind would be the Lord, but people are short-sighted, right? We're sheep. Our, fe- our faces are to the ground. All we can see is this little bit right in front of us. And Moses says, lift up your heads. Look up and look at the Lord. See what it is that he's done for you. See how it is that you've been brought to this place. Remember what it is that the Lord is asking you to do. And so he says, uh, you've got two choices here. <laughs> Right? This is a great motivational speaker, Moses. He says, you've got two choices. You can either choose life or you can choose death. Choosing life means obeying the commandments of God. And we've talked about this. We've talked about how faith is acted out in obedience, right? We read that Abraham in faith is obedient by following the Lord. Noah in faith is obedient by building the ark over and over again. Faith is acted out in obedience. And so, again, Moses says here, be obedient in following the commandments of God, which is easier said than done. And so he breaks it down for us. And he says, here are three elements to obedience. Three things that we have to have to be obedient. The first thing we have to have in obedience to the Lord is we have to love Him. In other words, we have to want to do what He wants us to do. If we're recalcitrant, if we're hesitant, if we're dragging our feet and saying, oh, if you, or if you're going to make me do it, we're not going to be able to be obedient. Obedient requires this sacrificial love. It requires that we actually hope for the things of God, that we actually desire and thirst for the things of God. And so we have to practice and we have to be stoking that fire of love for the Lord and for His ways. And then, of course, it is actually walking in His ways. We actually have to do the things that He wants us to do, right? So it wasn't enough that Noah says, Well, Lord, you know, I love you. That would be a really short and bad story, right? (laughs) I love you, Lord. And then the rain comes, right? Noah says, or Abraham says, I love you, Lord. But maybe it's a little extreme leaving Ur. 
Right? The whole point, the evidence of those stories is that they love the Lord, they seek His ways, and then they walk in His ways. They actually do what He's called them to do. So to walk in His ways, right? To do the things He's called them to do. And we walk in His ways by keeping the commandments, right? By keeping the statutes. And to keep the commandments, as the psalmist says here in Psalm 1, we have to meditate upon them. Meditation's a really popular thing today, right? People will tell you to meditate, right? Well, you can meditate on some really bad stuff, by the way, right? Meditation by itself is not always a great thing, right? Some people want to meditate upon... Uh, I, I don't even need to go into it, do I? What we're called to meditate on is the ways of God, right? On His commandments, right? What is righteousness? What does that look like? Have I seen it before? Have you seen it? Have we seen it together? What about justice? Have you seen justice? Have you seen justice now? Have you been called upon to act justly? What does that look like? We have to constantly be meditating upon justice. We have to be talking about how can I be just in my daily commute? How can I be just in the doing of my homework? How can I be just in the classroom or uh, at, the, at the kitchen table? What does justice look like in, in my life? And so we have to be constantly meditating upon those things, upon the ways of God, and stoking those fires of love, of sacrificial love, devoting ourselves to His ways. This, in the end, is what is going to bring Philemon to this incredible place that Paul is asking him to go. This is a crazy letter, right? This is the only time that we read an entire book of the Bible in one Sunday, right? We read the whole book today, right? You read a book of the Bible today. Well done. This is a letter of Paul's to a man by the name of Philemon. And let's just think for a moment, a minute about who Paul is. Where is Paul at when he's writing this letter? He's in prison. Do we often take advice from people in prison? I don't. I don't know about you. He's a Jew. He's a tent maker. Right? He's a, he's a tradesman. So here he is, a Jewish tradesman in prison. And who's he writing to? Who is Philemon? Philemon is a landed gentry. He is of the highest social class in Colossae. Right? A church is meeting in his home. He has a home big enough. He has property large enough. He has means large enough that he is inviting the church into his home. And he's providing for them out of his wealth and beneficence. Right? So he's a Greek landed gentry of wealth and means. There is no way he should be listening to what Paul has to say. They're of a different social class. They're of a different ethnicity. They're of a different nationality. Paul should have on the surface, as Roman society would understand it, zero claims upon Philemon. To tell him what to do. This is the last guy Philemon would be looking to for advice according to Roman society. And of course Paul's claim is upon humility. That Philemon would value and be willing to humble himself by taking in a slave who's run away. There are many virtues in Christianity that a Roman would have identified with. Courage, 
love, honesty. They'd say those are good things. But humility? They would not have valued it at all. And Onesimus is coming to him as a slave. And we want to understand that slavery in the ancient world is very different than the way we came to understand it uh, in the 17th and 18th centuries in the United States or the Western world. It wasn't based on race. They didn't even know what race is. They understood ethnicity. But the understanding of a, of a bloodline or of, of blood race uh, wouldn't have been at all familiar to the ancient world. They would have understood ethnicity, but slavery or bond service wasn't based on that, unless you had taken over another person's village, right? But bond service or slavery would have been because I captured you in battle, or some people would put themselves into bond service because they had no other way to support themselves. They had no home. They had no skills. So the only way that they could eat and have a home and have a community that would accept them would be to offer themselves in service and to put themselves in bond, right? We do it every day when we put ourselves into debt, right? You can own me and, and, and my paycheck. So here is someone who's in bond service. And what does Paul do? He doesn't just say, go ahead and free him and he's going to stay here with me. He sends Onesimus back and he says, free him and make him not only free, but make him your brother. That's crazy. That this wealthy landowner would take a bondservant back who had run away and who would treat him as a brother. This is why most people in the ancient world looked at Christianity and said, you're doing what? Treating servants as brothers and sisters? And this is why Jesus says, hate your mother and your father. Is he meaning actually hate them? No, he's saying wake up and understand that your life your trust, your foundation is not in your family, it's not in your social standing, it's not in your ethnicity, and you have no claims to the kingdom of God through any of those means. Your place and seat at the table has nothing to do with any of that. It has to do with your willingness to be humble before God and to accept His tender mercies and to participate in those at his table. So often we are tempted to put our faith in other things. One of the great gifts that my mother gave me when I was a child, I was worried one day about going to school. I did not want to go like many days. I was afraid and uh, I was scared and I was scared about the kids at school or tests or work or something like this. And my mom looked at me and she said, you know, I can't always be there for you. And she says, even when I am, I don't know that I'm always going to tell you the right thing. Since she said that to me, I've kept my ears open to hear other people saying that. And it's surprising at how the opposite is usually said. How easy it is for parents to lie to their children and say, I'll always be there for you. It's not true. We can't. And even if we are there, we don't always do the right thing. I know that I haven't. I haven't always done the right thing by my children. How could I say that to you? How could I stand up and say, I've always been there and always done the right thing? I have not. 
And so I can't invite them to have faith in me and trust in me. But they can believe in the Lord. They can trust in Him because He is always there. He is always righteous. He is always just. He always knows how to love. He always knows what is right. And if we're going to base our life, if we're going to put our trust in anything or anyone, any aspect of society other than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we are putting it upon sand and we will be washed away in the storms of life. But if we are obedient to Him and we sit down and we weigh the price and we build our lives upon Him and upon His foundation and His ways, meditating upon His commandments, we will be built and founded upon his truth and upon his kingdom and his kingdom shall have no end 